please take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2. And we'll continue working our way through this epistle. I'll read this morning 1 John 2 verses 15 through 28. We begin with that exhortation we considered a couple of weeks back. Do not love the world, starting at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him or you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming." Let's look to God once again in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the ministry of the word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would open it to our minds so that we can understand it and that you would enable us to receive that word with meekness And that we would all prove to be good hearers, good ground hearers, as we heard in that parable we read this morning, and that we would indeed produce fruit, abundant fruit, 
for the glory of your name. To that end, we need your Holy Spirit, even as John writes about here today. So grant us your Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen. Well, last week we began to consider what John had to say about the Antichrists in verses 18 and 19. We saw that the Antichrists have come, people who taught false doctrine about Jesus Christ. And secondly, we saw in verse 19, the Antichrists have gone. Some of them evidently were a part of their congregation even, but they went out, as John said, and they did it so that it might be made manifest that none of them were, as John says, of us. None of them were the true people of God. They were not true Christians. Well, in the following verses that we'll be looking at today, John says more about these false teachers. Notice in verse 26, he says, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. People were trying to deceive them. They were no doubt self-deceived. It may be that they knew exactly what they were doing, but most likely, as with most false teachers, they were self-deceived. At some level, they really believed the false teachings they were teaching, and so they were self-deceived and they were trying to deceive others as well. And as he speaks about these false teachers, teachers, he emphasizes the great difference between them and the believers that he is addressing. One translation translates verse 20, the beginning of verse 20 anyway, this way. It says, you no less than they are among the initiated. In other words, these false teachers were probably teaching in such a way that made them the know-it-alls. They had special spiritual knowledge that other people did not have. And John is trying to say, they say they know these deep spiritual truths, but the reality is, you, the people of God, have a true anointing from the Holy One. So he's emphasizing that these people should not let these false teachers bully them, either into believing their false teaching or into thinking that the false teachers are all that <clears throat> and they're just little nobodies and they don't have the great understanding that the false teachers do. So today, today let's consider the Antichrists and the believers, or we could say the Antichrists and the believers contrasted. It goes from verse 20 to verse 28. We'll see how far we get today. First, let's consider the anointing. And we see what John has to say about the anointing in verses 20 to 23, and then he also comes back to it in verse 27. And so let's notice a few things about the anointing. And the first thing is that the believers have an anointing. The believers have an anointing, the first part of verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And I'll just cut to the chase because we're trying to preach a little bit shorter sermons here, and I'm trying to preach a little bit longer text if I can today. What it's saying is this, that you have the indwelling, if you're a Christian, 
You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and therefore you have within you the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And we're going to see that here's the emphasis upon the Holy Spirit's work, his teaching ministry. Now he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And I don't believe here the anointing, the Holy One is the Holy Spirit. The Holy One here is the one who anoints. But there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit is the thing with which they are anointed. So Christ, I believe, is the Holy One. I say that because there are other places in the New Testament where he is called the Holy One. For instance, um, in Luke 4.18, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'll look at that in a moment. In Mark 1.24, when the demons are cast out of the man in the synagogue in Capernaum by Jesus, the, the, the demon, when he comes out, says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in Acts 3.14, when Peter is preaching in the temple, he says to the Jews, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So in other words, there are other places, these are not the only ones, but there are other places where Jesus is called in the New Testament the Holy One. And I think that's whom John is referring to here, to Jesus. Jesus anointed the people, and the anointing was the Holy Spirit. He anointed them with the Holy Spirit so that they had the Holy Spirit. Let's look, look at a couple of other, or not look at them, I'll just read them to you. A couple of other places where we see that. That God anoints people with the Holy Spirit. The first one is Luke 4.18, and Jesus himself says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, and that's God, has anointed me to preach the gospel. So God the Father anointed Jesus. Jesus is quoting there from Isaiah 61. He says that God has anointed him with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the anointing. God the Father anointed him. And then listen to Acts 10 and verse 38. You have a similar statement about how God, Peter says, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So we should look at this text in a similar way. The Holy One is Jesus Christ. Jesus procured the Holy Spirit when he died and rose and when he ascended to heaven, we're told in Acts 2.33, Peter says, he has poured out that which you see and hear. So it's Jesus who poured out the Spirit, and that's what John is saying. You have been anointed by Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit of God. And that anointing brings with it the understanding of the gospel. That's why I say there's an emphasis here on the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's just look at a few texts briefly. First of all, John 16. When Jesus was with his disciples on the night before he died, he taught a lot about the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16. And let's just look at a few of the words that he spoke that night. This emphasizes that he is the Spirit of truth, and as the spirit of truth, he opens the minds of believers so that we can understand the truth. 
So John 16, beginning at verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. So Jesus goes to the Father. As he says earlier in John, he says he's not going to leave them orphans. He's going to send another comforter, another um, helper. And that helper is especially one who helps them to understand the truth. He teaches them about the things that Jesus said. He teaches them about the things that are in the Word of God. He helps them by opening their minds and enabling them to understand. They have an anointing from Jesus Christ. Or let's look at Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. The passage doesn't specifically mention the Holy Spirit here. But the point is, it reminds these believers of their coming to faith in Christ. And now listen to what it says. So Paul says that he prays, he gives thanks to God for them, jumping into verse 5 now, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it all is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. It emphasizes the truth that they've heard, which is another emphasis of 1 John 2, the passage we're looking at. They were turned to God by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. They understood the truth of the gospel. And as we just read from Matthew 13, verse 6 tells us that these Colossians then bore fruit in their lives. And then one other passage is the very next epistle, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5, showing how the connection, there's a connection between the gospel and our understanding of it and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Paul says to the Thessalonians, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So we connect those things together, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, his presence in a believer's life, and their understanding of the gospel, believing the truth of God's word, and holding steadfastly to it. The believers have an anointing. Verse 20, the first part of the verse. Secondly, the believers know the truth. The last part of verse 20 where it says, in my version it says, and you know all things. And then verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Remember I said he's emphasizing to them that even though they were influenced, they were at least subject to the influence of these false teachers who said they're the ones who knew everything, you commoners, 
You mere Christians who are not the enlightened ones, you don't know the things we know. John is saying, I'm writing to you because you do know the truth, not because you don't know it. They know the truth that the Holy Spirit has taught them. They're anointed by the Spirit. Well, what is the truth here? Well, the truth is the gospel. It's the truth about Jesus Christ, what the gospel teaches about him, what the apostles taught them. It's the truth that saved. He's saying, you know that truth. You do know it. There's a different way that verse 20 is translated, mainly because there's a different, it's the same word, but it's a different case of the word, where it says, you know all things. There's a variant reading, and the King James and the New King James say it that way, you know all things. Most newer translations read it this way, not you know all, but all of you know. And that's probably the best translation. And what would John's point be there then? It would be to say this, you all know, you all have knowledge. You're not dummies. You're not nobodies because you're not those enlightened teachers that are going around as they call themselves. No, you are the people of God and you all know in distinction from those false teachers who really don't know and for their encouragement. Yes, they do know. That's what John is doing here. <clears throat> Look at verse 27 as well along these lines. First part of verse 27 where John says, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you and you do not need that anyone teach you. So they know the truth. They've learned it from the best of teachers. And I don't mean the Apostle John. I mean the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what John is saying. You all know. You have this anointing. That's why you know. And you don't need anyone to teach you. Now there are plenty of false teachers around nowadays that tell you for that reason you don't need to go to church. You don't need pastors. And you don't need books like commentaries to help you understand the Bible. All you need to do is listen to them. So it's, their teaching is a contradiction in itself. But that's not what John is saying. You don't need any teachers. No, the New Testament teaches us that teachers are necessary. The whole New Testament teaches that. John himself is a teacher other than the Holy Spirit, but he's teaching them. What he's saying is this. You know what you need to know to be saved. You don't need some extra foreign special teaching like you didn't hear from the beginning. You know the truth from the beginning, he says. And that's the truth that you need to hold on to. You know that. It's kind of like um, in Jeremiah 31 with the promise of the new covenant where Jeremiah says in verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and no more shall everyone teach his brother saying, know the Lord for they all will know me. John's saying, you do know God. You have that anointing of the Spirit. And so in the first part of verse 21, when John says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, he's doing something similar to what he did back in verses 12 to 14 
Remember I said, he says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. Then he goes on and calling them fathers and young men. And then again, fathers and young men and children. What's the point? The point is, he's wanting them to know he knows and believes that they are true believers. And that's what he's saying again. No matter what the false teachers say about you, no matter how much they belittle you, no matter how much they may try to denigrate your faith and your profession, you are real believers. And then look at the last part of verse 21. He also says, you know the truth and you know that no lie is of the truth. What's he getting at here? He's already asserted that these false teachers are liars, or he's going to especially assert it in the next verse. But he's already indicated that. These people, these false teachers, they're not teaching the truth about Jesus. They're liars. They're false teachers. Don't listen to them. So he says here, you know that no lie is of the truth. You hear a lie, then turn away from those teachers. You hear something that contradicts what you've heard from the apostles? Turn away from them. In other words, truth is not measured on a sliding scale. There's truth and there's error. That's especially the way John writes. You either love God or you hate him. There's no in-between. And that's what he's saying here. And that's how Jesus taught, isn't it? I've quoted Jesus' words here a couple of sermons ago, but I'll do it again from John 8, verse 44 and verse 47. Jesus says to the Jews who were antagonizing him and opposing him as he taught in Jerusalem, he said, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Now someone might say, well, But some of the things Satan says are true. That's what makes him so sneaky, right? Yeah, but Jesus doesn't look at it that way. Overall, he's a liar. And so if he just mixes little lies with the truth, he's still a liar. So Jesus goes on to say, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He who is of God hears God's words Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. The believers know the truth in distinction from the false teachers. Go on to the middle of verse 27, and he, Paul, John follows up on this point. He says, but as the same anointing, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, teaches you concerning all things and is true, and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, either abide in him or you will abide in him. So if there are lies mixed in, even mixed in with truth, John is saying, look at it as though it's all a lie. That's how you should look at those false teachers. And you should see yourselves as those who know the truth and those as those who do not. Truth is not measured on a sliding scale, especially 
when it comes to the truth about Jesus, who he is. So as we look at the anointing, first, the believers have an anointing. Secondly, the believers therefore know the truth. The Holy Spirit of God has taught them. And then third, the antichrists are liars. The antichrists are liars. That's verses 22 and 23. John says, well, let's, let's start out. I'll, I'll give you the, the uh, two divisions of these two verses first. First, we have liars identified, and then secondly, antichrists condemned. So liars identified, the first part of verse 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So who is a liar? Well, it's the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist. This is the closest John comes to giving us a definition of what an Antichrist is or who an Antichrist is. It's someone who denies the Father and the Son. He denies that Jesus is the Christ. So he's saying, I'm pointing out particular liars especially. The antichrists I spoke about before, the ones who left you, the people who heard John's letter when it was read first knew more about their teaching than I do or anybody does in the world nowadays because we just don't know exactly what their teaching is. We'll, find, we'll read more about it as we go on in 1 John. The first thing John says about it here is this. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. There are many, many ways to deny the truth about Jesus Christ. The truth about him is he is fully God and fully man. That's putting it in a nutshell. Usually the, those who deny the truth about Jesus Christ are denying one or both of those things or some combination. Most likely the false teachers that John is writing about were denying that Jesus Christ was fully God. They might have taught that he was a real man upon whom the Son of God came for a time, but not he, he didn't remain upon him when he died on the cross. That was just a man dying on the cross. They might have taught that his body was not a real body. He was just, it was just a, a phantasm. It appeared to be a body. We don't know the exact error, but we know this. They denied that Jesus is the Christ. They denied that he really is who he is. Many English versions state it this way, that who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. As though this is the supreme lie that anybody can tell. They can deny the deity or the humanity or both of Jesus Christ. He's the chief of liars. That's John's point. And he says, this is the Antichrist. If someone denies that, he's one of the many Antichrists. It doesn't mean he's the Antichrist. But this is what John is saying here. And notice the last part of verse 21 then. Like it said in the last part of verse 21, no lie is of the truth. This is the great error of false teachers it's true that no lie is of the truth, but this is the lie par excellence that cuts against the grain of the gospel and of who Jesus Christ is. 
all false religions are wrong at this point. Hinduism is wrong when it says that Jesus could be a god, like millions of other things in this world. Islam is wrong when it says even positive things about Jesus, that he was a good man. He was a true prophet. He was the greatest prophet that even came till his time. But he's not God. They're wrong. Their, their, their religion is therefore a lie. They are not of the truth. Similarly with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. None of them teach that Jesus is the Christ, the way the Bible teaches it, that he is God incarnate. So the Antichrists are liars. Secondly, Antichrists condemned. The last part of verse 22. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And then going on to verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So the Antichrists are condemned. First of all, John says in verse 22 that if someone denies the Son, that is, he doesn't teach that he is God. That's the main thing. That's the main false teaching we see of these false teachers in 1 John. Then he's also denying the Father because Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father. And if you deny the Son, you're denying the Father. That's how John looks at it. And that's the way it is. So someone can't say that he denies that Jesus Christ is the true God, but he knows the true God. This is what John's saying. If he denies the Son, he doesn't have the Father either. This is how he can say, you know that these false teachers don't really know God. They just don't know him because they don't know the Son. They deny the Son. And then secondly, he says, you can't teach this about Jesus Christ and know God. That's verse, the last part of verse 23. He who acknowledges, excuse me, the first part of verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. But then he says, he who acknowledges the Son, he who acknowledges the Son does have the Father also. So if someone truly knows God, then we know this about him. He agrees that Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate. If he holds to that from the heart, he truly knows God. He knows the Father also. If he doesn't, he doesn't know the Father. Very simple. It reminds me of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, where Paul said, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, John isn't saying the exact same thing here, but he's saying something very similar. He's saying that no one can say that Jesus is the Son of God except by the Holy Spirit. You have to have that anointing from Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to be able to say that he really is the Son of God and believe it from the heart. And so he's saying those false teachers obviously don't believe that. They don't know God. Just a, a couple of brief words of practical application for us, brethren. This teaching here helps us 
to evaluate the faith of people, quote-unquote faith, of people who are in heretical sects, S-E-C-T-S. If they're in a religion in which it says, their, their religion says that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. They have some fatal error in their doctrine of Jesus Christ. It helps us to evaluate them. And it's not difficult. If that's their faith, they are not of God. As it says here, they are denying the Father and the Son. They don't have the Son, they don't have the Father. But then also, it helps us to see the importance of knowing the truth about Jesus Christ and holding fast to it. If you ever read about the doctrine of Jesus Christ, especially who he is, and, and what the Bible says about his being both God and man, it's difficult doctrine. We can't fully understand it, but we have to believe what the Bible says about him being God and man. And if we don't, we're damned. It helps us to see the importance of knowing the truth and holding fast to it, understanding it so we don't get moved off from it by false teaching. Remember, you can't teach what those false teachers taught about Jesus Christ and know God. But let's think of that phrase, of, of that statement of the Apostle Paul no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Isn't there a problem here? Think of Judas. At some point, he was going around and teaching the truth about Jesus. He was preaching, I presume, that he is Lord. Now, the Bible says you can only do that by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So, how do we say that Jesus really was a traitor in the end and went to hell? Well, that's what leads us to the next point as we come to verse 24. There is the anointing, and then secondly, there's the abiding, verses 24 to 27. We have the anointing and then the abiding. Let's notice, first of all, the need for abiding. Verse 24, the first part of the verse John says, therefore, in light of what I've just said about the importance of knowing the truth about Jesus, who he is, therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And then verse 28, he says, and now little children, abide in him. So he says that we should abide in the things we heard from the beginning, the gospel, the truth about Jesus, Verse 28 says that we should abide in him. I should, should say, verse 24 says, let that truth abide in us. Verse 28 says, we should abide in him. Now, what does abide mean? We've already encountered this word in verse 6 of chapter 2, verse 10 of chapter 2, verse 14 of chapter 2. I said I'd say more about it later. Now I'll say more about it. The English word is a lot like the Greek word abide. It can mean at least two different things. It can mean where we live or where we reside. So I abide in Cedar Grove. That's where my home is. That's where I really live. It can also mean 
remain or continue, like in persevere. So which does it mean? Well, what do we usually say about John? What have I said anyway when it comes to the question, what does this word mean when it has two possible meanings? What did I say we should usually assume about John? That it has both, because he loves ambiguity. And I think that's the way it is here. So think of it in terms of that first passage in John 15 where this idea of abiding comes into play. Jesus talks about himself being the true vine and believers are the branches. And then what does he say? Abide in me. So what does that mean? It means have your home in me. Have a genuine relationship with me. Don't just be outwardly connected like those branches that get snapped off and cast into the fire. Be truly connected so that there's actually sap flowing from me to you. Abide in me. Have that genuine relationship. But what else does it mean? It also means persevere in that relationship. See how they both work and they're both important. Persevere in a genuine relationship with me. Matthew Henry gives a simple definition of abiding that includes both of these elements. Listen to it. He says, To abide is to keep up our union with Christ, our genuine spiritual union by faith, and to do all we do in religion in the virtue of that union. We maintain that union. We persevere in it. But it's got to be a real union. That means power is coming from God by His Holy Spirit to us. So abide. There's the need for abiding. We have to have the Word abide in us, the truth abide in us. We have to have ourselves abide in Christ. There's abiding, the need for it. Secondly, let's notice the blessings of abiding. Continuing on in verse 24. First of all, the first blessing is we will abide in Christ. If his word abides in us, if the truth abides in us that we heard from the beginning, the gospel truth, then we will abide in Christ. Notice the last part of verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So if we make sure that the word abides in us, we don't let it slip out. We don't go to some false teaching about Jesus. Then we will abide in the Son and in the Father. Let me just point out three things about this statement here. Number one, remember how it said in John 15, verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. Abiding is what I like to call reciprocal. It doesn't just happen. We have to consciously, deliberately do things to abide in Christ. But He will abide in us. The two things will always happen together. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. A second observation is this. You say, well, pastor, it sounds so confusing because you talk about the truth abiding in us 
and us abiding in Christ. And then you said something about Christ abiding in us. The fact of the matter is, when you read these statements about abiding in John's gospel and in John's epistles, you'll find this. He talks about Christ. We abide in Christ. We abide in God. And they abide in us. He speaks about the Word. The Word abides in you and you in the Word. He speaks about the truth the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, the light, abide in the light, eternal life, you have eternal life abiding in you. Later on in chapter 3, he's going to speak about God's seed abiding in believers, and then he'll talk about the love of God abiding in believers and about us abiding in the love of God. You say, well, it's all so confusing. I agree. But those are the things that John writes. Those are the things Jesus says about abiding. And the emphasis is that there is real truth in our hearts. And the Spirit of God is in our hearts. God Himself is in our hearts. And we need to abide in those things. That's the idea. And another observation is this. That when we think of God being in us, the truth being in us, the Spirit being in us, the doctrine of Christ being in us, we should look at it as something that is alive within us. We shouldn't look at it like um, a person would look at his leg if he had his leg blown off in a war and now he had a prosthetic device put on. That becomes part of him, but it's not a living part of him. The truth that abides in us, the spirit that abides in us, the Christ that abides in us is something that is alive within us. It's something that's working within us, and it's something that will remain within us. And we could say it does things in a sense. Remember the language of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think that was the language. It reminds us of the language of, of um, Hebrews chapter 4, that the Word of God is living and active. It does things. It changes us. And this is why John is so convinced that if people have the Word of God, the truth of God, the Spirit of God dwelling in them, they will bear fruit. So we saw back in John 2, 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. I don't have the time to go back and read it. We will bear fruit. A real Christian will bear fruit. It's not a question. It's going to happen. It's another reason why we shouldn't confuse John's teaching with legalism. He emphasizes so much that you need to do this. You need to do this. And if you don't walk as Jesus walked, you're not a Christian. And that, to some people, that sounds like legalism. That's not John's perspective. John's perspective is this. No, it's easy. It's easy. These are all tests. And what do the tests do? They reveal who and what you are or are not. If you have the truth in you, you will bear fruit. So don't think of it as a test that you take to get into medical school or whatever. That is not only revealing that test, what you know. The test is going to be the way you earn your way into medical school. This is just the tests that John gives that reveal who you are. 
If you pass them, you earn nothing. It's just that you have the grace of God in your life and the tests reveal it. Then there's a second blessing of abiding in Christ. The first is, if you abide in him once, you will continue to abide in him. The second one is, we have eternal life promised to us. Verse 25. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Remember how Jesus said it in John 17 as he prayed to the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you have the Son, you have the Father. And if you have the Father and the Son, you have eternal life. And it's not just life then, in eternity and for eternity. It's not just life after Jesus comes again. Remember how he also said in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. He's talking about the life that Christians live in this earth. Remember how he said in John 7, that he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, or as the old language is, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Talking about the Holy Spirit of God being in our life. That's a blessing that comes to every genuine Christian. Abundance of life now, eternal life forever. We have eternal life promised to us. And even if you're not a Christian and you don't have eternal life, and even right now if you don't have any desire to have eternal life, the message of the gospel is this, that that promise will be yours It will be yours if you come to know and accept the truth about Jesus Christ. If you come to know him through repentance and faith, that you turn from your sins and you lay hold of Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you from your sins, the promise of eternal life will come to you. It will come to you if you continue in that relationship with him. If you truly know and follow him, you will live forever and you will live your remaining days on this earth in possession of that eternal life. But then we come to the last blessing of abiding that John mentions here. There are many, many blessings of abiding in Christ and having his truth abide in you. And the last one is that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. Verse 28, and now little children abide in him. And then he gives a reason. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So the blessings of abiding are that we will abide in Christ. We will continue to abide in him. We will have eternal life. We do have eternal life promised to us. And third, we will have confidence in the day of judgment. And John says it positively, and then he says it negatively. Positively, we will have confidence in the day of judgment. Secondly, we will not be ashamed. That's the negative part. We will not be ashamed before him at his coming. First, let's think of the negative. Think of something that you have done in your life, something that you're ashamed of, And maybe it's something that nobody else knows about. 
or perhaps maybe only very few people know about it. Maybe you've kept it from your parents and maybe your parents have even died and when they did, you had a sense of relief. My dad, my mom never found that out that I did when I was younger or maybe even when I was older. Or it could be just something you've said but you're terribly ashamed of it or or maybe even something you've only thought in your mind and even never told anyone else about it, but you thought it and you're ashamed of it. Well, imagine that that were shown what you said or what you did on a big screen here behind me. And you had to stand up and admit it here this morning. The thought of that would make you want to crawl into a hole and never come out. It might make you want to do something worse, even do something drastic. I read how two months ago the mayor of Seoul, South Korea, was accused of sexual harassment by a former secretary of his. This was the current mayor of Seoul, South Korea. He had been mayor there for 10 years, and he was widely considered to be a likely presidential candidate in some upcoming elections in South Korea. He was so overcome by the thought of facing all the public shame, shame that would come on himself and on his family, that two days later, he hiked into the woods of a nearby mountain and took his own life. That kind of thing, someone's terrible, terrible sin being found out, and his or her having to face the music and not being willing to do it and doing something like that, that kind of a thing is not uncommon in this world. And whenever it happens, it is a picture, just a faint picture, but it's a picture of the shame that will be experienced by people on the day of judgment, by all people who are not in Jesus Christ and who have not abided in him. You may never have been caught at the terrible thing that you one day did, or maybe there are many, many of them. You may never have been caught, and your secret may go to the grave with you. But God has caught you. He has caught you. And he will, in the day of judgment, if you are not found in Jesus Christ, he will bring you to public humiliation. Not before just dozens or hundreds, but millions upon millions of rational beings, people and angels in the last day. And if you're not found in Christ, that will only be the beginning of your sorrow and your pain. Because this is not a blessing for everyone in the world. It's just a blessing for Christians. So that's, again, another reason why I say today, repent and trust in Jesus Christ and hide yourself in him from that coming day of the wrath of the Lamb. But then finally, brethren, I said we'd look at the positive. The positive is this. 
verse 28, that we may have confidence at his coming. That we're not shrinking in fear because of that coming day. If we're Christians, we shouldn't. We're not going to be ashamed before him at his coming. In other words, if you're a Christian sitting here today, even though you may have done things that are as shameful as some of the unbelievers sitting here might have been going through in their minds, you say, well, I wonder if I've done things even more shameful. It's likely. And it's very, very possible. You may have. But what this text is saying is that one of the blessings of having a true relationship with Jesus Christ and persevering in that relationship is this. There will be no shame for you when he comes again. No shame, period. This is not a misprint on John's part. There will be no fear. There at least should be no fear when you think of facing the same judge that is going to publicly hum humiliate all unbelievers in this world. No shame, no fear, and there will be no pain for you. You might say, but my sins are, are worse than the sins of many unbelievers, I think. Sorry, there's no purgatory for Christians. Nothing. Even though your sins make you worthy of the same end as the wicked. But what there will be for you as a Christian is an overwhelming sense of deliverance. That even though you deserve eternal punishment, you will have escaped from the just deserts of your sin. And there will be an overwhelming sense of blessing. As Jesus said, the meek will inherit the world. You'll inherit the earth. We will inherit the kingdom of God. And there will be an overwhelming sense of unworthiness. Like we sing in the hymn, When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, and love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I Oh, you'll have a sense that you are unworthy of every blessing you receive. And even, I'll call it a sense of unbelief. We'll have the sense, I think, to some degree, can you believe this? That unworthy sinners like we are receiving all of this forever. And a sense of joy. As Peter said, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And he meant now. He meant here in this life. What will it be then? And so I say in closing, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would take your word today and write it upon our hearts and do bring forth fruit in our lives. Help us to realize that if we are your people, you have given us this anointing. You have given us the power to produce fruit and the power, the power of your Holy Spirit to abide in the truth, to abide in your son Jesus 
Enable us to do that through the preaching of the word that we've heard today. For we ask this all in Jesus Christ, your son's name. Amen.